How's it going, mate? Brock Ashby here. Welcome to episode number 33 of the Better With Brock podcast. This is going to be a solo podcast, and I'm going to be talking over a few different topics. The main thing that I want to hit home is five weird or unspoken fat loss tips that no personal trainer has probably told you. They're not the classic uh, do cardio or lift weights or you know, eat less, create a calorie deficit. Like most of you that have been following me for a while know that sort of stuff. So I want to hit it from a different angle and show you some things that you may never have thought of or even discovered. That's initially what I want to to cover today. That's what we will be covering. Then I'm going to be diving through four questions that I got on my Instagram stories that I think deserve a bit of limelight. And Instagram is a great place for sharing content, but it's quite hard to create a lot of context around uh, answers to questions that actually need a bit more time than just a yes or no, or create a calorie deficit, or get into a surplus, or train your chest three times a week. Sometimes questions that are asked need more time, and then you post them on Instagram with more time or answers, uh, more time spent answering the question, and then you kind of figure out that no one really cares. And I think it has to do with the platform that we go on and the sort of mindset that we have. For example, when you open up Spotify to go for a podcast and you're listening to this, you have that mindset of, okay, I'm going to give Brock you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, or even one hour. But if you go onto TikTok, you go, okay, I'm giving this reel or this video on TikTok three seconds or even two seconds before I decide if I'm out or not. And that's the struggles of short form content. So that's why I like to bring some of the questions that I get in short form that people really want to know onto my podcast because it gives me time to unpack it and give you a, a answer that is nuanced, that is uh, truthful, that is interesting, that requires time instead of just a yes or no question. So we'll be doing four final questions. Then I want to read uh, a passage before we go that I think is kind of explaining how many of us are living our lives. And I think we need to pivot from the trajectory that overall we are heading personally. So without further ado, let's get into it. The first fat loss tip that you've never heard before is to chew your food more. The technical word for chewing is called mastication, not to be confused with the closely sounding word of you get it. And the reason that chewing your food more can help you to lose fat can be outlined from a study that I'm going to pull up. I'm sitting here in front of my laptop. If you're not watching this, you can uh, watch it on YouTube so you can actually see me talking. I actually prefer to do that. I like to put on YouTube, put it on a screen and just kind of get get some work done, some admin or, or just put it on a screen just because well, from a creator's perspective, I like to do it to give them views because then that helps out their podcast. So if you want to help me out, uh, watching on YouTube is often the best way to help someone out because that gives them views on YouTube, which is a positive thing. Then I think more net positive than a listen on Spotify, but you know, obviously do what's convenient for you. But I like watching on YouTube. So if you're not watching it and you're just listening, you can watch it if you want to. Okay, so there's a study... Um, effects of chewing on appetite, food intake, and gut hormones. So there's a few things 
that uh, do relate to what I'm saying, uh, but I'm going to read the whole kind of structure of it, and then you will uh, get to understand why it, uh, why chewing does provide uh, benefits for fat loss or weight management. Um, so this is a systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, the objective of the study, uh, which was done in 2015, was to seek insights into the relationship between chewing, appetite, food intake, and gut hormones, and to consider potentially useful recommendations to promote benefits of chewing for weight management. And ultimately, what they did was skew a different number of papers, um, and this was 10 papers. Uh so here are the results. Uh, five of 16 experiments found a significant effect of chewing on satiation. Satiation is ultimately just fullness, like how full you feel. And satiety is the same thing. So if food, if a food is high in satiety, it is high in making you feel full ultimately. So five of the 16 experiments found a significant effect of chewing on satiation or satiety using self-reporting measures. So people reporting themselves uh, feeling more full. 10 of 16 experiments found that chewing reduced food intake. Three of five studies showed that increasing the number of chews per bite increased relevant gut hormones and two linked this to subjective satiety. This meta-analysis found evidence of both publication bias and between study heterogeneity. Uh, la 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 la. Um, la 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 la. Um, Analysis of the heterogeneity found a substantial effect of the fasting period where the duration of fasting influenced the decrease in hunger due to chewing. Prolonged mastication, there goes that beautiful word again, significantly reduce, reduces self-reported hunger levels. The conclusion, evidence currently suggests that chewing may decrease self-reported hunger and food intake, possibly through alterations in gut hormone responses related to satiety. Although preliminary the results identify a need for additional research in the area. Um, focused uniform experimental designs are required to clearly understand the relationships that exist between mastication, appetite, satiety, food intake, and ultimately body weight. So that's just one example. There is another example, and I can put the studies that uh, that I'm referring to in the show notes so you can check them out if you want to. But I'm just ultimately trying to just pretty much back up what I say. So another study in 2013, uh, the title is Increasing the Number of Masticatory Cycles or Chewing is Associated with Reduced Appetite and Altered Gut Postprandial Plasma Concentrations of Gut Hormones, Insulin, and Glucose. Okay, so check this out. Uh, so, so once again, it's not just talking about how full you feel on a diet, but if chewing does help you to feel more full on a diet, it's, it, it's going to be a net positive. Uh, to determine the influence of uh, masticatory efficiency or chewing uh, on postprandial satiety. So postprandial is just like after the meal, like how full do you feel after the meal? Uh, in glycemic response, 21 healthy males were recruited for this randomized crossover trial. The participants consumed a fixed amount of pizza provided in equal sized portions by chewing each portion either 15 or 40 times before swallowing. Subjective appetite was measured by appetite questionnaires at regular intervals for three hours after the meal, and plasma samples were collected for the measurement of selected satiety-related hormones, la 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 la. This is other stuff that isn't necessarily tied up to directly to satiety. Um, an ad limitum meal was 
provided shortly after the last blood sample was drawn and the amount eaten recorded. Compared with 15 chews, here's the juicy part of the story. Compared with 15 chews, chewing 40 times per portion resulted in lower hunger, preoccupation with food, and desire to eat. Uh, and then it kind of talks about... Um, okay, I'll... I'll read this out because it kind of applies. Chewing 40 times before swallowing also resulted in a higher plasma cholecystokinin concentration. Don't really know what that means. And a trend towards a lower ghrelin concentration. Okay, so ghrelin is your hunger hormone. So if you're going to have a lower concentration of this hunger hormone, you're going to be less hungry. Um, however, food intake at the subsequent test meal did not differ. The results suggest that a higher number of masticatory cycles or chewing before swallowing may provide beneficial effects on satiety and facilitate glucose absorption. All right. So ultimately, if you chew your food more, you're going to be able to feel more full. And that is the art of, of dieting, really. If you look at a diet, what you're doing is you are a caloric diet, right? Uh, sorry, a caloric deficit diet where we're eating in an energy deficit to lose body fat. These are fat loss tips you've never been told before. So if you're in a calorie deficit, you are consuming less calories than your body needs to maintain your weight. So since you're at an energy deficit, we have to try our best to feel as full as possible because no matter what we eat, we are going to be at an energy deficit. So we just need to fight that off. And feeling full is a major one. And, you know, there are other things we can do to feel full, which I'll be talking about next. One more thing that I really want to hit the head on, hit the nail on the head on, sorry. Um, but chewing your food more sounds ridiculous, but it actually works. So what I think this means on a practical perspective it could mean okay let's chew our food more okay that's the obviously the practical takeaway so instead of just sitting there and trying like shoveling food in our mouth like i do because i'm a busy person and most busy people do busy parents busy people at work people with busy careers what they're doing is kind of squeezing in tiny lunch breaks that used to be one hour down to like 15 minutes and probably still working through them. Like I do that. I'll sit my yogurt bowl in front of me. I'll be banging out emails or writing programs and I'll be eating while I'm going. I'm not thinking about chewing, but I guess if we, to coin the term mindful eating, if we start to mindfully eat and we chew our food more, it does help us have a more pleasurable experience when we are eating. And it also helps us to feel more full. And I think one of the big reasons would also have to be that it slows you down. And the longer you take to finish a meal, the, the, the more time your brain will have time to say to yourself, Hey mate, I think you're done. I think you're full. But if you just keep shoveling your, your food in, you can eat a lot of food. Just like if you go to a buffet and all you can eat a smorgasbord, as we used to say back in New Zealand, I haven't really heard that here in Australia, but if you're just smashing food back to back, back to back, it's easier to squeeze it all in. But if you had a meal and then chilled for 10 minutes and got another meal, chilled for 10 minutes, you know, you might get three plates and some dessert, but if you're just shoveling it, I've easily had five plates of mains and then dessert 
which is a couple of plates because I've been hammering it in. My body hasn't had time to say, Hey mate, you need to just chill out. You are smashing too many, too many plates of food and I'm full. And then I would feel sick after, and I wouldn't be able to sit up straight. I'd have to lie down in the car for ages. I remember the last time I went to, or not the last time I went to a buffet, but the most memorable time, my friend from jazz school, Daniel Hitchens, who's still a great friend who lives in Christchurch. He's an absolute beast on guitar. Uh, he challenged me to an eating contest and he, I was probably around 75 kilos at the time. Like I was a really small guy. Um, I was dieting and I was really lean and didn't really know what I was doing. And I think I was just starving myself and he was probably like around a hundred kilos, maybe a little bit more. So he had a lot of weight on me, but I challenged him and I did that. I ate as fast as possible, ate as fast as possible. Um, obviously not chewing to try and, <laughs> not get as full as I could, but, um, I got smashed and he smashed me. He, he could just eat a lot. And then I felt so sick because I was eating faster than my brain was signaling to tell me to stop. So there could be this practical perspective of chewing your food more and taking your time when you're eating, mindfully eating. Uh, chewing more can also, as I said, help food be more enjoyable because you're taking all the textures in, you're taking all of the tastes in. But I think one of the other things when you're uh, kind of like chewing your food more is that you're... Oh, I kind of lost my train of thought. What was I going to say? There's the time thing. Ah, if you're chewing your food, you're eating solid food. If you're not chewing your food and if you're drinking like smoothies, juices, uh, protein shakes, these things are not filling. And I think with our lifestyles these days, as I was touching on before, we're so busy like we often reach for things that are convenient, like protein shakes in a vending machine uh, at the end of the gym when we walk out or a few of my clients have these protein waters. Uh, they're not going to fill you up. And there's many reasons, but you're not chewing it, right? So you're not getting a chance to really break food down. There's no fiber to it. There's no real, oh man, I just had like 120 calories, 150 calories. Whereas if you were to eat 150 calories of broccoli, that would be five cups. That's a lot of chewing. That's a lot of fiber. That's a lot of uh, food that's going down uh, into your digestive system. But if you just drink, it's really easy to just consume a lot of calories. So chewing your food is going to help you to remain full on a diet, which is one of the major things that stop people from succeeding in their diet or binging because they feel so deprived and then they compromise and make up for that and exceed their calories. So chew your food more, eat more food as opposed to drinking your calories. That's point number one. Point number two, fat loss tips you've never been told before is to consume more fiber and more accurately, 15 grams of fiber per 1000 calories. So if you're on 1500 calories, you know, that's going to be 22.5 grams of fiber. And this is just approximate. You don't have to eat exactly that number, but this is a good number to strive for. And this is, you know, what I recommend people to eat in my uh, Team Brokash Pete programs. So let me jump into the fiber study that I want to look at, uh, which was uh, done in 2008. I'm just reading abstracts. If you want to read the studies, once again, you can. Okay. Um, it is the 
position of the American Dietetic Association that the public should consume adequate amounts of dietary fiber from a variety of plant foods. There's, yeah, most fiber that comes from plant foods as opposed to like, you know, there's not much fiber in meat and eggs and things such as this, uh, like milk, yogurt. It's mainly plants. Populations that consume more dietary fiber have less chronic disease. In addition, intake of dietary fiber has beneficial effects on risk factors for developing several chronic diseases. Dietary reference intakes recommend consumption of 14 grams of dietary fiber per 1,000 calories, or 25 grams for adult women and 38 grams for adult men. Based on epidemiologic epidemiologic studies showing protection against cardiovascular disease appropriate kinds and amount of dietary fiber for children the critically ill and the very old are unknown fair play the dietary reference intakes for fiber are based on recommended energy intakes so you know these are based on like you know how sometimes you go to the grocery store and they say like the average recommendation is you know 2500 calories for the average male that's what they're basing uh, their things on um, but this is obviously going to be in America. Uh, the dietary reference uh, based on recommended energy intake, not clinical fiber studies. Usual intake of dietary fiber in the United States is only 15 grams per day. So if we were following this guideline, it would only be as if like enough fiber for them to eat 1,000 calories per day. And we all know not many people are eating 1,000 calories per day by choice. Although solubility of fiber was thought to determine physiological effect, more recent studies suggest other properties of fiber, perhaps fermentability or viscosity, are important parameters. High fiber diets provide bulk, are more satiating, there we go, more filling, and have been linked to lower body weights. Evidence that fiber decreases cancer is mixed and further research is needed. Yeah, that's a big claim. Healthy children and adults can achieve adequate dietary fiber intakes by increasing variety in daily food patterns. Dietary messages to increase consumption of high-fiber foods such as whole grains, legumes, fruits, and vegetables should be broadly supported by food and nutrition professionals. Consumers are also turning to fiber supplements and bulk laxatives as additional fiber sources. Few fiber supplements have been studied for physiological effectiveness. So the best advice is to consume fiber in foods. Look for physiological studies of effectiveness before selecting functional fibers in dietetics practice. So this is a big one. The best advice is to consume fiber in foods. You know, there is a ton of podcasters and even influencers pushing things like athletic greens and different supplement foods, different fiber foods, uh, sorry, different supplements. But I've always said this, it's better to eat whole foods. And there is a unique population where fiber can actually cause uh, more gut problems and more bloating than benefits. But that is a rare case. Most people would benefit from consuming more fiber. Like in general, we can fairly say that the world is becoming more obese. And I think that if we are consuming more fiber, that's going to help limit our calorie intake because we're going to feel more full. If we are consuming foods that are low in fiber, then we're probably going to eat more calories. And that may be why with America only having 15 grams of fiber per day, why they are overeating and why they are, I think they are like 40% of their population is obese. Um, yeah, 
I'll stop there. There was one more statistic I'd say, but I was like, that's a big question mark. But I think at least for, yeah, 40% of their population is obese. Like that's no good. If it, their fiber is very low and maybe if they doubled that or even tripled their fiber target or hit their 15 grams of fiber per 1000 calories, they could limit their intake because it's very, very easy to overeat, especially when you're drinking things like milkshakes and Cokes um, and uh, juices even if you think you're doing like drinking healthy foods or doing well, sure you are, but try to eat as much food as possible because that's going to help. It's called like, it's going to be self-limiting. Like it's going to stop you from overeating. Like if you drink an apple juice, you can smash that easy, but to eat an apple, it takes time. You have to chew more uh, and there's more fiber to it. So you're not going to eat as much. So if you are looking to lose fat, Increasing your fiber would be a great one if you're not already eating enough, which once again is 15 grams of fiber per 1,000 calories. Point number three, take the stairs, not the elevator. So we have something called our NEAT levels, which stand N-E-A-T, which stands for non-planned exercise activity thermogenesis. And that is as simple as the title suggests the portion of exercise that we don't plan. So that is just like walking around the house. Maybe you're doing the vacuuming. Maybe you're doing the dishes. Maybe you're putting the kids down. Maybe you're playing with the kids. You know, uh, maybe you're just going for a stroll with your wife. That kind of sounds intentional, but um, it's just kind of the amount of exercise that you're doing without focusing on, okay, this is my training. And then we have things called our eat levels, which is exercise activity thermogenesis, which is your planned exercise, Okay. So when we look at the amount of calories that we burn in a day, around 60% of that comes from our BMR or our basal metabolic rate. That's about around 60%. And our basal metabolic rate is ultimately how many calories we would burn if we were in a coma in hospital or if we were asleep. It's literally just keeping us alive. That's 60% of what we burn throughout the day. And that's dictated by our sex, by our height, by our weight and by our age. So those are relatively fixed, which is quite hard to say in this day and age that your sex is fixed, but that's the way your BMR works, okay? And then we have our NEAT level, which is responsible for around 15 to 20% of how many calories we burn throughout the day. And then we have something called the thermic effect of food, which is potentially around 10%, 5 to 10%. And then we have our eat levels, which is our training. So ultimately we kind of have four and that eat and, the, and that training is around five to 10% as well. So our BMR is fixed. We can't really change that unless we gain weight or lose weight. We're not really going to be coming, you know, taller uh, or, or less taller or shorter. And we're not really going to change our biological sex from male to female. I'm saying biological because that's like what you were born as, you know, you're biological born sex, if that makes sense. You can't really change that regardless if you transition or not. So these are relatively fixed. Okay. But the things that we can change are our neat levels and our eat levels, but our neat levels are responsible for around 15 to 20%. Because when you think about your neat levels, your non-planned exercise is how much you're walking around throughout the day. And we walk around a lot more. We fidget, we move our head, we scratch our head a lot more than we work out. Even if we worked out every day, that's only for around about an hour a day if you're training every day for an hour. But when you think about when you wake up, 
you're doing a ton of things. Even if you're just at the office and work, you're making a coffee, you're walking back and forth to your office, you're walking to the train station, then you're sitting on the train or standing on the train, and then you're walking from the train station to work, you're doing whatever you do at work, you get up, you go for a piss, you come back. These sorts of things are called your neat levels. And why this third point is take the stairs, not the elevator, is because the more we can move in our day-to-day life, the more we can increase how many calories we are burning throughout the day, which is going to help us create that calorie deficit to lose fat. So try to get your NEAT levels up. Ultimately, look for opportunities to increase them. So for example, here's something that my wife and I do. Instead of jumping in the car and going down to the grocery store, we'll walk. It's a 10-minute walk. Okay, we could make that two minutes if we drove and it'd be a much faster trip. But if you want to increase your physical activity, if you want to increase your needs level, you have to inconvenience yourself. And yes, you may sacrifice efficiency or time, but what you're doing is prioritizing your physical activity and your needs levels, which pours into not only helping you lose fat if that is your goal, but also building your metabolism. So, I want you to think about that. How can you do that in your life? Can you get off a bus stop early and walk? Another example of what my wife used to do when she was working, she would, instead of like, there's a bus stop right outside our apartment. She could have slept in an extra 30 minutes, got out of the door and waited for the bus and caught it and gone straight into work. But what she did was walk for 30 minutes pretty much alongside the bus route because that's the only way to walk. And then she'd catch the bus and she'd be on there for like five minutes and then she'd get there instead of being on the bus for 10 minutes. So she'd sacrifice that 30 minute sleep to to walk one because she always felt better at work if she was walking. And I'm not saying that you have to do that, but these are ways that we can try and look at our life to inconvenience ourselves time-wise, but prioritize ourselves physically. So, you know, another... And another example is I used to walk to the gym when I was a face-to-face personal trainer sometimes. So instead of waking up at 5.30, I would wake up at 4.45 and just leave straight away. And I'd it, it'd take me an hour to walk into the gym, to the city. And I'd walk from 4.45 to 5.45 and then have my first client at 6. Instead of catching an Uber or catching the bus or driving. Now, that was inconvenient, but what I would do is I would answer my Instagram stories, my Instagram DMs, I would write captions, uh, I would post on social media. Um, I tried to make it more productive for me as opposed to just walking, which there's nothing wrong with, but I just also needed to do things while I was awake to get some stuff done. So there are ways, sure, you're inconvenient to yourself, but there are ways for you to try and get stuff done if you want to, or else you can listen to music, you can call friends, but taking the stairs, not the elevator making that a rule for yourself is a big one. I always do that. I always try to look for stairs as opposed to the elevator. Uh, with the Team Brock Ashby, uh, I want to call it the Team Brock Ashby body quarters. If you're watching this on YouTube, comment below, see if you like it. There's the headquarters, which everyone does, but I want to do body quarters because I'm trying to transform bodies in there. Anyway, so when I get to the Team Brock Ashby body quarters, you can't take the stairs up. So I take the elevator, but I can't take the stairs down. So I take the stairs down always. That's a small thing. But over the two or three years that I'm there, that's slowly going to add up. 
And ultimately what you're trying to do is change your identity because when you change your identity, it's much easier to change your habits. Okay. So if you're not a person that prioritizes physical activity, but you want to be, it's not just like as simple as, okay, I just do it. You have to actually really convince yourself that your identity is changing and you are a person that seeks out physical activity as opposed to just standing still in an elevator. You want to walk upstairs. Um, and the same thing goes like when you're on an escalator, <laughs> this kind of grinds my gears. Like you're walking, you're walking, you're walking and the escalator takes you up, but you can still walk, you know, whether it's flat or there's steps on the escalator, you can still walk while you're on the escalator, but people just, I don't, I don't think people have thought about it, but you can still walk just because the ground is moving underneath you. So I'll challenge you next time you get on the escalator, just keep walking. So instead of walking to it and stopping and then getting off and then going, oh, that was cool. You can get there even faster. You can keep walking on the escalator. It's possible. So try to change that identity, right? Become a person that walks even when you're on an escalator, that takes the stairs even when you can take an elevator, that takes the the early bus stop instead of the late bus stop that's right outside of the destination that you're going. Be the person that calls a meeting walking around a park as opposed to, you know, sit, sitting around a boardroom table. These small changes will make a big difference. Point number four is to hide your cardio. Hiding your cardio, I think, is one of the biggest hacks that you can do. Most people don't actually enjoy cardio. And I'll put my hand up to say that. There were times in my life where I loved cardio, but that was because I hadn't met weight training yet. At high school, I love doing the cross country. I love anything competitive. So if you want to like race me, I'll race you. So I loved it. I loved cross country at, at primary school and at intermediate school. But when I got to high school and I started lifting weights, that love dissipated. And I started to fall in love with weight training. And that's what I enjoy. And I realized this is actually what my body is better at. I'm made... I have a lot of type 2 muscle fibers. I'm a very explosive kind of fast person. And when I was doing cross country, I was good at it because I practiced it a lot. But when I settled into weights, I really started flourishing uh, with my physique, I believe, with my performance and with my aesthetics. So I don't enjoy cardio, but cardio is a good way to help to increase your calorie expenditure throughout the day. And if you go back to point three, what I was saying, it Cardio is planned exercise, so it increases your eat levels. So if you are to do cardio, try to hide it. And I think this is the best thing, kind of tricking yourself into doing something that you don't want to do. The classic example is I've been doing jujitsu for just over uh, a year and a half. And I hate cardio, but I love jujitsu. It's so fun. And the truth is I can roll for 90 minutes and be absolutely gassed and not even be aware that I just did 90 minutes of interval training. So around about three weeks ago, we did a class where we rolled. And if you don't know what rolling is in jujitsu, it's kind of like sparring and boxing. Like you're with a partner and you're doing jujitsu, doing jujitsu. And, and we would do it for, I think it was five minutes. And then we'd have like one minute or one minute and a half rest. And then you go back and you roll with someone else. And in that five 
minutes, six minutes that you're rolling with someone, it's pretty intense. It's not cardio, cardio, like you're not sprinting, you're scrambling, you're, you know, kind of crunching side to side, you're changing positions from side control to mount, or you're going from half guard, um, then you're going into leg attacks and you're, or then you'll stand up and you'll start doing wrestling and takedowns. You're doing that for like five to six minutes. It's pretty gassing. And then you only get a minute to 90 seconds off. And then you go back and you do it with someone else. And this next person could be huge. They could be massive. And then the next person might be small. And then the next person you might be rolling with a girl. And then you might be rolling with someone that's like a black belt, like the professor's rolling with you. So you're getting all these kind of different tastes and it's like interval training. But if you zoom out, I'm doing cardio. I'm huffing, I'm puffing, I'm sweating, I'm drenched in sweat. I don't even know if it's mine. And I'm doing 90, like 90 minutes of intervals. I've hit my cardio. So I'm getting the benefits of cardio and the benefits of loving jujitsu. And if I was to think about it, I'm boosting my metabolism because I'm increasing the amount of calories that I burn throughout the day. And I'm also like getting stuff done health-wise, cardio-wise. I think the biggest point I could make around this would just to be to try and find a sport that that you enjoy. And it could be jiu-jitsu. Like I was introduced to jiu-jitsu by uh, a few people that I follow, Jordan Syatt, James Smith, uh, Darren Cartel. They, they do it all. And then Joe Rogan was talking about it a lot. And then I just had a few friends that had started doing it. Yeah, I, I, like I didn't even know that did it. And I gave it a go because I used to play rugby and I used to play a lot of sports growing up. And even though weights or bodybuilding or training in the gym kind of feels like you're doing a sport, you're not. You're just bodybuilding. You're just lifting weights. You're just competing with yourself. But I really like competing against others. And it also gave me like a social circle to hang out with people and like make new friends, which is is difficult as you get older, but especially as you work for yourself and you're kind of self-employed and you're doing your thing and you're grinding like you know you have employees and you have people that work around you and you have your friends that you've had for a while but other than that I, I wasn't really mixing with other people so there was other benefits too but I don't want to stray too far from the point hiding your cardio is a great way to do it uh, it's quite popular in America to play pickleball at the moment a lot of people are doing that uh, you could take up boxing you could uh, hide your cardio by doing cardio with friends go for a run with them like you, you can go for a run with someone and you can still talk like you're cruising. You're not massively pushing yourself crazily, but you're <clears throat> able to get your cardio in while catching up with a friend. Like that is a great way to do it. Or you could like hike through nature. So you're like looking around, you're taking in things, but you're still hiding your cardio. You're still getting it done. Right. And if you love cardio, you can just do it a hundred percent. But this is for people that aren't necessarily cardio fans like myself. So that's point number four. The last point that I want to say is a pretty basic one that you probably already know, lift weights. But I want to jump into a study that is encouraging around lifting weights. So this study was done in 2009 and it's a meta-analysis. It's long-term effectiveness of diet plus exercise interventions versus diet only interventions for weight loss a meta-analysis. Okay, so I'm going to just read out the abstract to you guys so you can digest it. Diet and exercise are two of the commonest strategies to reduce weight. Whether a diet plus exercise intervention is more effective for weight loss than a diet-only intervention, 
in the long term has not been conclu conclusively established. The objective of this study was to systematically review the effect of diet plus exercise versus diet only on the both long-term and short-term weight loss. Studies were retrieved by la 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 la. Um, studies were included if they were randomized control trials comparing the effect of diet plus exercise interventions versus diet only on weight loss for a minimum of six months among obese or overweight adults. Uh, 18 studies met the inclusion criteria. La, 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 la. We found that the overall standardized mean differences between diet plus exercise and diet-only interventions at the end follow-up were minus 0.25. Um, la, 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 la. Because there were two outcome measurements, weight and body mass index. We also stratified the results by weight and BMI outcome. Okay. The pooled weight loss was 1.14 kg or 0.5 kg greater for the diet plus exercise group than the diet only group. Okay. So the average was, you know, 1.1 kg um, for diet plus exercise and diet only was 0.5. So half a kilo. We did not detect significant uh, heterogeneity in either stratum. Even in studies lasting two years or longer, diet plus exercise interventions provide significantly greater weight loss than diet only interventions. In summary, a combined diet plus exercise program provided greater longer-term weight loss than a diet-only program. However, both diet-only and diet-plus-exercise programs uh, are associated with partial weight regain, and future studies should explore better strategies to limit weight regain and achieve greater long-term weight loss. Okay. So, ultimately, diet-plus-exercise, like, if you... Like if you look at it like this, if you're just doing diet and you're trying to lose fat, you have like one thing to utilize and that's eating less, eating less calories, which is how you would lose weight if you're not losing weight already. If you eat less calories, so you're already doing the diet and then you add an exercise, which is burning more calories, that's going to help you create a larger deficit. So this is kind of like the simple way of looking at it. But then within that exercise, we are looking at uh, awesome things like weight training to help preserve muscle mass. And um, like even interval training can help kind of prevent muscle mass as well. So there's another study that I want to just quickly read. Um, it's a uh, meta-analysis. Once again, uh, diet exercise or diet with exercise, comparing the um, also diet, exercise, or diet with exercise, comparing the effectiveness of treatment options for weight loss and changes in fitness for adults 18 to 65 years old who are overfat, obese, systematic review, meta-analysis. Oh, yeah. I don't want to read everything out like I have been doing, um, but let me just kind of like get to the nitty gritty of it. Um. Okay. Where should we go from? Uh, first, hypercaloric balance is necessary for changing body composition, so creating a calorie deficit, changing the way your body looks, but the com compositional changes, like how much fat and how much muscle you have, or any biomarkers associated with metabolic issues, with analysis showing that there is a necessity to include exercise in combination with diet, effectively elicit changes in 
body composition and biomarkers of metabolic issues. More importantly, the combination resistance training okay, and dieting was more effective than endurance training or combination of resistance training and endurance training, particularly when progressive training volume of two to three sets for six to 10 reps at an intensity of um, 75% of uh, one rep max uh, or higher, utilizing whole body and free weight exercises at altering body compositional measures and reducing total cholesterol, triglycerides, and low-density lipoproteins. So ultimately, what they're saying is like dieting and resistance training was the best outcome. Additionally, resistance, resistance training was more effective at reducing fasting insulin levels uh, than endurance training or endurance training and resistance training. Even though generally lower effect, effect size than resistance training, the inclusion of endurance training was more effective. So like resistance training ultimately won. But the inclusion of uh, endurance training was more effective when it was performed at a high intensity. Uh, example, uh, something greater than 70% of your VO2 max. Or in an interval training style when utilizing the relatively common prescribed method of low to moderate steady state method. Um, yeah, cool. Uh, thus indicating that focus of treatment should be on producing a large metabolic stress. Uh, as induced by resistance training or high levels of endurance training rather than an energetic imbalance for adults who are overfat. Okay, so ultimately, what we're looking at here is some evidence that's showing that lifting weights and exercise, sorry, lifting weights and dieting is the most effective way to sustain weight loss and uh, prevent, maybe not prevent weight regain but kind of weight management to maintain weight um, but then they were also saying if you want favorable compositional changes changing your body composition resistance training is going to help that and ultimately that's because if you're lifting weights and in a calorie deficit you're going to give your muscles a stimulus to stick around and a reason for your body fat to leave excuse me so those are your five takeaways, right? Point number five, lifting weights is pretty obvious, but I wanted to show you that lifting weights and jumping in a calorie deficit is the best way to make favorable body composition changes or aesthetics to look awesome pretty much. Um, because if we just diet and we're not lifting weights, we can lose weight, but losing weight is different to losing fat. If we lose weight, it's a combination of fat and muscle. But if we are lifting weights heavily, close enough to failure, then we're going to be able to just lose body fat and maintain muscle, which is what's going to help us look quote unquote shredded or lean or toned, whatever words you want to use. So these are your five points. And just to summarize it, point number one is to chew your food more. Point number two is to consume 15 grams of fiber per 1000 calories. Point number three, take the stairs, not the elevator. Uh, increase your neat levels and identify as a person that moves. Really work on changing their identity. Number four, hide your cardio. Number five, lift weights. Now I want to jump into these four final questions from my Instagram stories. And then uh, I'm going to close out. So here's one. Do you use any wearable fitness trackers? Do you think they're reliable? And what are your thoughts on fitness trackers? And which do you prefer? So I use a Fitbit for... Only two reasons. One, actually three, if I'm going to be honest. 
One is to measure my steps. Two is to measure my sleep. And three is to use it as an alarm. And this is a hack. If you have a wife or a husband or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a child that you don't want to wake up using it as an alarm. Anyway, so point number one, the accuracy is not amazing with fitness trackers in terms of how many calories that you burn. So if you burn, uh, you know, X amount of calories per day, your Fitbit's probably going to get that wrong by quite a large degree, but it's relatively accurate in measuring your steps and it's a consistent thing. So even if it's slightly off with your steps, at least you're consistent and you have this like this consistent inaccuracy, if that makes sense. So like, even if your Fitbit says you do 11,000 when you only do 10,000 steps, at least, you know, it's only a 1000 step discrepancy. So I do use a Fitbit. I, I have the Fitbit sense. Um, if you're on, if you're on YouTube, you can see it. Um, so this is it here. It's kind of like an Apple watch, but I got an Apple watch and to be honest, it was really annoying because I hated Instagram notifications going off. I hated emails coming in, text messages coming in on my Apple watch. And I know you could turn it off. Um, but I was given an Apple watch and for free by Apple as a personal trainer that was working at fitness first and uh, I sold it <laughs> because I just wasn't a fan of it. But the Fitbit has been doing well. I'm interested in trying the Whoop, but the only downside to that is it doesn't track steps. And I do like tracking steps because it's a good target to know that I want to hit 10,000 per day or maybe 12 or 15, depending on where my goals are at. Um, It tracks my sleep, which is great. Uh, I know if I've slept well or not, but it also just gives me an idea of how wakeful I am in my sleep. I think I'm awake quite a lot, but I can't remember. So um, that helps me to understand if I'm actually asleep or not, but I do move a lot of my sleep. So sometimes I wonder if I was actually asleep, but they think I'm awake because I'm moving so much. Um, And lastly, it's such a hack. If you have an alarm, like if I was to have an alarm clock, I'd wake up my daughter and I'd wake up my wife every time I left early in the morning. But since I have my, my Fitbit sense to set an alarm on my, on, on my watch, it just vibrates and wakes me up. It's quiet. I wake up, I get out of the bed, I leave the room and then I'm out. Haven't woken up anyone. So I think it's a hack for if you want to like get out of the bed silently. Uh, that's just a side note. So that's why I like it. Um, I do have to put on three consecutive alarms because there's been many times where even just this thing vibrating on my wrist crazily doesn't wake me up. I'm just so tired sometimes. So something to be aware of. Um, do I think they're reliable? Uh, to a degree. I don't think they're perfect. But as I said, if something is inaccurate, at least it's going to be consistently inaccurate. So you can use that to your advantage. Uh, the thoughts on fitness trackers and, and which do you prefer? I can only speak for Fitbit because I've had them. Not a fan of Apple Watch just because they annoy me too much. And I'm interested in trying out the Whoop because uh, I want to wear it while I'm doing jujitsu. Because so the thing is, like with my watch, I can't wear that while I'm rolling because it's on my wrist, which we use a lot in our jujitsu. But with the Whoop, you can put it around your bicep or you can put it in your underwear, I think by your leg, which would be good to measure that. Because I absolutely flog myself in jujitsu, I go really hard. But uh, I don't know like what the steps are, or like how much, how many calories I burned, or all these things, which I'm actually interested in, in in seeing. Second question: Should you train two days in a row when you are sore, or better to take the day off? 
Um, if you're if you're sore, you can still go to the gym the next day, but you just need to train a different muscle group. I think the people that ask this question are doing too many exercises or workouts that are hitting the same muscle group. So if they're sore, they're like, oh, you know, that's me, I'm done. But if you were to, uh, let's just say, have a simple upper body day, lower day, upper body day, lower day, upper body day split, three upper, two lower, if your upper body was absolutely crushed, you could still go into the gym and do your legs. So you can train the next day. You don't have to take that off because your upper body is not really affected when you're training your lower body. And then while you're training your lower body, your upper body is going to be recovering. So then the next day, you could probably do your upper body. And then while your legs are recovering that day, you could do legs the next day. Like just it, it, like when I explain it like this, it sounds quite common sense driven. But if you don't really understand programming, this might be a foreign concept. So you can train the next day. You just have to have a structure of programming that will allow you to train when you're sore. The same way could go if you're doing a push day and your chest and your triceps and your shoulders were sore, you could go into the gym the next day and train pull day and do your back and your biceps because they were not uh, the primary movers of the previous workout. And then, and then even if your push day muscles were still sore a couple days later and your pull day muscles were sore from the previous day, you could do lower body that, that next day. And that's how push-pull lower split works you're able to recover the next time you take on that muscle group. So that's something I want you to think about. Uh, number four, ideal post-gym snack. That's not a protein shake. Uh, post-gym snack. I like yogurt pouches. I think they're pretty convenient. Um, they're a great source of protein. There's not much fat. You kind of want a relatively low-fat meal after the gym so that the fat doesn't slow down the absorption uh, of the nutrients whilst you're consuming that meal you want to get um, protein in for sure so post gym post workout you want to have a high protein source um, so if it's not a protein shake you could have like i said a yogurt pouch you could have a normal meal like you could have chicken and rice you could have beef and rice you could have pork and rice um, you know you could have pasta you can pretty much have anything but snack wise you could have beef jerky as well that's a good one um Look, you could have eggs, but then they have high fat content. So maybe egg whites if you just want to get protein in. Um, Like those are great options. You know, you could have tuna and rice. That's another simple, great bodybuilder option. Um, But you relatively, uh, you want to keep fat relatively low post-workout. Um, But ultimately, look, there's no perfect gym snack. There's no perfect whatever. There's no perfect diet. There's no perfect food that you have after you work out. You just do what works for you with your calories and macros and your taste profile, what you enjoy eating. So, you know, it could literally be anything, but don't be afraid to have a meal. Like some people think that, oh, like they shouldn't have a meal after they work out. Um, like it has to be something like a protein shake or something small and quick, like a yogurt or, you know, but like you can sit down and just have a decent meal. You know, you could have vegetables pasta and beef you know you could have a chicken sandwich you could do literally whatever you want my only advice is to keep fat relatively low and space that out away from your workouts uh question number four uh i drink coke and red bull and i'm thinking of replacing it with caffeine tablets what are your thoughts my first thought is to go from to go from coke to coke zero red bull to red bull zero 
because that will give you extra calories that you can eat with. And if I tie that back into the first point where I'm saying chew your food more, if you're having uh, a standard Coke, which is, I don't know how many calories, let's say it's 200 or 150. That's 150 you can utilize towards eating food if you replace that Coke with a Coke Zero. Uh, same with Red Bull. And if you're thinking of replacing them with caffeine tablets because you think it's uh, more healthful, then I can get behind that. But if you crave the taste of Red Bull and Coke and you really enjoy it that way, then I'd recommend going to the zero options with lower calories. Um, with caffeine tablets, I've never tried them, but I'd rather have a coffee, but that's up to you. Like I've stopped taking pre-workout. I used to smash it a lot. I had one bad experience and that was the last time I had it. I literally lost my vision and I couldn't see straight. Uh, so I had to stop training halfway through and then I had to go to sleep because I felt terrible. I felt like I wanted to spew as well. Someone gave me a new pre-workout that they had and it just didn't sit right with me. I was like <laughs> literally, I was literally smashed. I had to sleep and sit down because my legs went numb as well. So it was not a good experience. And from then I'm mean, like, look, I just don't want to do anything like that. I'll just rather have a black coffee where I know what's in it. It's coffee and caffeine. So if you want to replace it with caffeine tablets, that's your choice. Um, if you can't live without a Coke or a Red Bull, then like you could have it and work around it. Personally, I think, you know, getting away from drinking full Coke and full Red Bull is a great idea and pursuing the Coke Zero and Red Bull Zero options. So those are the questions that I wanted to answer from my stories, uh, Q&A. And so, so The weekend released a new song this week uh, with Playboy, Cardi and uh, Madonna. And it's called Popular. I absolutely love it. It's a jam. It reminds me of like the old school Pharrell kind of Justin Timberlake vibe, Senorita. But I think the lyrics really tell a story of where we're at. And I want to close with this because, um, you know, I spend a lot of time on social media. Everyone else's screen time seems to be going up. But I feel like this is the way that we are living. So I'm just going to read up to the end of the first, <clears throat> the first chorus. Here we go. Popular lyrics by The Weeknd, Playboy Cardi and Madonna. Uh, Tell me, do you see her? She's living her life, even if she acts like she don't want the limelight. But if you know her, she lives a lie. She calls the paparazzi, then she acts surprised. I know what she needs. She just want the fame. I know what she fiends. Give her a little taste, running back to me. Put it in her veins, pray her soul to keep. Every night, she prays to the sky. Flashing lights is all she ever wants to see. Begging on her knees to be popular. That's her dream, to be popular. Kill anyone, to be popular. Sell her soul, to be popular. Just to be popular. Everybody scream because she popular. She mainstream because she popular. Never be free because she popular. And I think that just really sums up what people are prioritizing these days. Not everyone, but I think a growing population. And now as a father, these things start to become more concerning for me because I'm introducing my daughter into the world. And as she gets older, she's going to start, you know, really what's the word um contributing to society like as a person um and i think like one of the most thought out careers in america was to be an influencer 
And I think like instead of trying to be an influencer, we should be trying to to do things that influence people, if that makes sense. So instead of just like solely being like, I want to influence people, it's like, okay, cool. You want to influence people. But like, what do you want to influence people with? Do you just want to be famous for fame's sake, for doing pranks or for, you know, for getting your boobs out or, you know, la, 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 whatever. Or do you want to do things that are so impactful that it that it influences people in that way? You know, uh, you can look at the Joe Rogan podcast like that. You can look at, you know, uh, Jordan Peterson like that. Um, you know, and there's other people that are creating good examples. They just came to the top of my head because there are people I admire. Um, I just think that, like, I don't want people to be pursuing influence. We should be pursuing things that can help influence people in a positive way. But I feel like, like this line hit me i was like well like such great songwriting she calls the paparazzi then she acts surprised it's like <laughs> i've actually known people that have done that it's crazy they act all surprised and they get these photos and they repost them and it's like they're paying people to be there it's crazy but anyway i don't think we should be trying to seek out the limelight and i know like i guess being well known or you know, having people look at you and give you attention stuff is nice from a human perspective that makes us all feel great. But I feel like if we're known for something, it gives us a bit more credibility than just being someone that is famous for fame's sake. And I feel like once again, as a father, as, as a, as a man who's putting his you know daughter out in the world, I really want her to pursue doing what she enjoys and con contributing to society in a great way through, through whatever she wants to do that um, with or by. I really like, like anyone, my daughter, my, my family, my friends, like I would rather than pursue something because they love it because it leaves a good feeling in people's hearts because it helps people as opposed to, Oh, people look at me or like I've got eyes on me. And that's why social media is becoming crazy. It's like, man, I, I made this TikTok video the other day. It's just getting edited at the moment. Like this, this girl posted, lose five kilos in one week. And then she posted a workout after that, right? But at the start, it was like, lose five kilos in one week. And then she did all these random exercises like burpees and lunges and whatever. And then in the caption, it was like, obviously... You know, she, she was like, it was like, save this brutal workout. La, 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 fire emoji. And then she said, obviously you can't lose 5kg in one week. You have to be patient, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, you're literally contradicting yourself, but you're just doing that to get views. It's like, you know, like you just want to be seen. You just want people to click on you. You just want to be, and and okay, cool. It, it, it leads to maybe more clients and business and and whatever but like <clears throat> you're literally like basing your marketing on a lie what does that say about you it's just annoying it's just annoying so anyway i wanted to just like close the podcast with that because i think we need to change the way that we're trying to live our life we don't need to necessarily be popular i think we need to be 
contributing in a positive way to the world and leaving it a better place than we arrived. Okay. All right. I think I'm going to wrap it up there. This was episode number 33. I'll see you on the next podcast. Bye.